Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this episode, you'll hear Jen Bosworth. And he smelled like Old Spice, which had this weird thing of reminding me of my grandpa, which I kind of liked. It was kind of a turn-on. That's a different story. And um... <laughs> That and more. But before that, hey, listen, some of you have been emailing us raving about the deal that we have with the folks over at One Month. You know, for the past few weeks, I've been telling you guys all about One Month HTML and just how easy it is to learn to code with the one-month video courses. Well, today I'd like to introduce you to their most popular course, One Month Rails. One Month Rails is a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials that teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build their first web application, a simple photo-sharing app, for example, in just 30 days. The best part is, if you get stuck, there's always someone there to help you out like a real person. In the one-month Rails class, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and much, much more. Over 14,000 students have already started building their dream app and taking their career to the next level. So what are you waiting for? You should enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk loves you. Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining, and you'll be helping to support Risk. Again, it's one month rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. Now, here's the show.
kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Glass Boy. Behind me now, I'll tell you, I like a glass dildo. But if you're going to be an entire glass boy, uh, I don't think it's going to work out between... Unless you're just, say, a musical act supplying the song that begins this episode. And what is this episode? It's live from Chicago 2. Our second time doing the show in one of my very favorite cities in the world. I just have so much love in my heart for the city of Chicago and its peoples. We had a lot of technical difficulties and a little crisis of one of the stories that we were originally considering being not at all true. So there was a lot of behind the scenes uh, messiness, but it was really the audience in Chicago who helped us through it all. There were two members of the audience uh, helped us with the tech and, oh, and there was a boy in the audience named Alex who left before I could say goodbye to him. Alex, write to me at uh, Kevin at Risk-Show.com because I want to, you know, flirt with you, tell you things about your booty. Everyone, everyone get on Facebook and Twitter and encourage Alex to uh, let me tell him things about his booty. Oh, and while I'm doing public service announcements here, folks. Let me just let everyone know that we at risk are looking for someone to help us with our Facebooking and our tweeting. We're also looking for someone, and this is a separate position, I think, someone to help us do marketing for the online education that we're now making available through the storystudio.org. So write to me at Kevin at risk-show.com and let's talk about it. We're going to run the entire Chicago show right now without interruption, and we're going to start with a stand-up comedian by the name of Darren Bodecker and a story he calls The Best Friend's Secret. So I am the product of a horrible accident, very terrible accident. Uh, my dad was 18. He had hooked up with my mom, who was also 18. They just graduated high school. They'd known each other for about a month, and then a horrible accident happened. And three months later, they did the right thing and they got married. And then by the time I was born, they had compromised their dreams fully. Now my dad, he was about to become a merchant marine. That's where you get on different ships and you go to different uh, ports, I guess, and different languages and different hookers, I guess, is what you do. And uh, he's doing that, so now he compromised and he becomes a salesman, but he works for the army, so that meant we would move every basically 12 to 18 months for my entire life until I was 18. We'd always move, 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 move. My mom, she was a dreamer and she fashioned herself to be a uh, painter and she would go all over the world and paint in different places. And her compromise was she just stayed in her room and painted from morning to night and you better not disturb her or, or crazy time. 
So I, for the first five years, basically raised myself on TV, learned how to talk and stuff, I guess, through that. Uh, then at five, uh, I had a sister. I guess they started to like each other, my parents did, and they had, I had a sister. And then at seven, I had a brother, and uh, I don't barely hardly know them because I was on my own and doing my own thing. So then, uh, by 10 years old, we moved to Spain on an Air Force base called Torjon Air Force Base. And uh, when I was 10, my parents, I guess, were in their partying phase. So every Friday and Saturday night, they would go out. And my dad, being cheap, would just hire the local high schoolers in the area to babysit me. And they were all terrible. They were really bad. It was just no fun, all self-involved and everything. Well, the last babysitter I got in the last three months I was living in Spain before we were to move again, uh, his name was Jeff, and he was a local kid, and I remember seeing him. He was a senior, he was 17, and he was the cool kid in the neighborhood, and he was my babysitter now. All of a sudden, it's, oh, it's that guy. And he was the best babysitter. He was so much fun. He was so, he taught me so many, uh, he taught me Monopoly. Uh, he taught me how to make s'mores. Uh, taught me all kinds of art stuff. Taught me about history. Talked about everything. He was so smart. He was the best, best babysitter. We put my brother and sister to bed and we just had fun. So about three weeks in, we had put my brother and sister to the bed and we were doing uh, a pillow fights and it was all over and we're in the living room, the fireplace is going and it's late and it's on a Saturday night and uh, Jeff goes to me, he goes, hey Darren, you want to be best friends? I totally wanted to be, but what? I'm 10, he's 17, how can we be best friends? It's awesome. I was like, yeah, okay. So then he goes, well, if you want to be best friends, you're going to have to do the best friend's secret. There's a secret. There's a best friend's secret. I, oh, I never really had a best friend before. He's going to reveal me the best friend's secret. Do you guys know what the best friend's secret is? All right, I'm going to tell you now. Don't tell anybody, all right? The best friend's secret is that I can put my mouth on his penis. Don't tell. That's what I so we pulled down his pants and I did it. I did it. I didn't even question it. It was a secret. Shh. I thought that was what it's for. I knew it was for peeing. I thought it maybe was kind of weird, but its purpose was for the best friend's secret. And I remember I, I just unzipped and I put my mouth, it was like a lozenge. It was real small, it wasn't hard. Nothing came out of it. And I was like, uh, 10 seconds and then boom, zipped up. We're back to fun. Oh, awesome, awesome. And so then every time he would come over, uh, basically brother and sister to the bed, and it was like a handshake. I had to do the best friend's secret thing. It lasted a little longer, you know. I had to hum some, and about a minute and a half when I was deciding what else to do after this. And it, was, uh, and it was just, and then fun. It was great. And it was just like, oh, that's what it's for. That's what the best friend stuff and that, yeah. And then, oh, man, we had to move. We had to move. I was having a great time. And we moved to a place called Acton, Massachusetts. Now, Acton, Massachusetts is a very small town outside of a place called Concord, Massachusetts, which is a medium-sized town outside of a big town called Boston. And in this small town of Acton, people, I guess, had all come, their ancestors had all come over on the Mayflower, and there were all a lot of, a lot of Joneses and Smiths, and uh, it was very tight, 
very tight community. I could feel it. Even being 11 years old, I could feel like, yeah, I'm a stranger here. So I didn't get any friends. I'm usually normally shy when I go to a new place. And I was shy like here, normal. And then about five months in, I befriended a kid from the neighborhood. He was younger. He was nine. And I was 11. And uh, his name was Petey. Petey was cool. And he comes from a pretty big family up the block. They had an awesome house, really super huge. And so me and Petey we just started playing. And we'd play in the woods, and we'd, we'd chase squirrels and berries and throw things. And we decided in the summertime, after knowing each other for a while, we are going to make a fort, a dirt fort. Like there was this abandoned field, and we just dug, dug, dug. For two weeks, it was big. It was a big dirt fort. We put a big blanket over the top. It was totally dark. We had flashlights. We were all ready. And at the end of two weeks, we were in our fort for the first time. And I had my flashlight in my face, and I looked at Petey, and I go, Petey, you want to be best friends? And Petey was like, yeah, okay, I guess, sure, I guess we can be best friends. And I was like, all right. Now, me being older, I had to tell him to do the best friend secret thing. So then I explained him what he needed to do so that we could be best friends. And instead of the action that I did when I was with Jeff, you know, like, yeah, okay, and then fun time. Uh, this time it was uh, Petey turned into the kid with the thousand emotions face. It was, he had a bit of horror. He had a bit of shock. He had a bit of wonder. He had a bit of surprise. He had a bit of humor. He had a bit of you're an abomination. All of that stuff was in his face. And then he drops his flashlight throws the thing off the top, gets out of the dirt fort, and starts running down the field. And he's running, and I'm out there, Petey, Petey, where are you going, Petey? And he was gone. And I remember thinking, oh, man, I hope he knows that's a secret. So I got out, and I went there, and I woke up the next day, and I was going over to Petey's house, and Petey's older brother was on the porch, and Petey's older brother goes, eh, there's the queer. And uh, all of a sudden, a lot of brothers and sisters come out, and then somebody throws an apple at me, and I run home. And suddenly, I think maybe Petey was like the town crier or something. You know, Bodak is a queer. And uh, because nobody talked to me anymore. As a matter of fact, from adult to kid to everybody, I was a complete pariah. For eight months, I got beat up so much. I got tormented oh so much. I ran so, I learned how to run really good. And I only stayed in the forest by myself. I was like a ninja because it was terrible. I remember walking through the mall and a, a full adult checked me hard. And I hit my ass on the floor and I'm crying. And I always cried at this time. My mom would always say, get over here, Darren, what do you want? And I remember asking her, what does queer mean? And she says, you, you're just weird. And then she would go paint. And uh, I just was so, it was eight, oh. The forest or my house or the complete hell that was school for eight months. For an 11-year-old, that was like three years of, wow. It was so bad. And then... <laughs> We moved. Thank you. Thank you, we moved. We moved. Oh, yes. I love moving now. I love it. We finally moved to Scottsdale, Arizona. And in Scottsdale, Arizona, I did my same MO a couple of months, not knowing anybody. Then I befriended this kid named Roberto. Now, Roberto comes from a big Spanish family up the block, and uh, a lot of brothers, a lot of sisters, just 
huge family. But me and him were the same age, and we were vandals in Scottsdale, Arizona. We would take our bikes, and we'd take a shopping cart, and we'd ram it into parked cars in the parking lot of the mall. We had switchblades, and we'd let the air out of tires. We had smoke bombs, and we'd throw it in open cars. We did a lot of crap to cars. We just destroyed. I must have let out a thousand tires. Uh, so we were friends for a while, and then his parents one day left town. They went on vacation, and he had the house to himself, and he was going to take me to his room, and we were going to play there, because I would always play in my room, but we could play in his room, finally, because, you know, it was unfair. So we go to his house Saturday. We go in there, we go up into his room, and he's got stuff, and he's showing me uh, Mad Magazine, and he's got other things going. This is the 70s, and then stuff's going down. So then all of a sudden, his older brother, Ernesto, comes into the bedroom and starts talking to Roberto in Spanish. Now, I lived in Spain, so I kind of understand that he was saying, go to the store, go get something that's going to be real far away. You're going to be away a while. So Roberto has to obey his brother. He goes, all right, Darren, stay here. I'm going to go to the store. I'll be back in a little while. You stay here. Have fun. And then Ernesto locks the door to the room, and uh, then he reveals to me the best friend's secret. Now, the way I justified it was, okay, now, Roberto, I am friends with him, best friends, and so therefore... By proxy, since Ernesto's his brother, I guess I'm best friends with him because it's a Spanish thing, maybe? It's a close connection with family? Okay. So, but instead of saying the best friend secret, he just did it. He just unzips his pants. And then, to this day, I have not seen a bigger penis in my fucking life. It was so big. It was just, it was crazy. It was crazy. It was crazy crazy big and then i did you know all right best friend secret so i got on my knees and i'm just and then it got bigger and then it got longer and then it got harder and i'm like this is crazy and then i remember thinking it is so big i'm not good at math but this ain't gonna add up i mean it's you can't put a whale into a one car carport it's not going to work. I had Bugs Bunny teeth back then. And uh, so I tried. And, I, ah, ah, and he, was, he just pushed me away. And then I was like, okay, well, I guess that's the, the best friend secret. And, uh, but instead of zipping up and like that, being like, hey, we're best friends now, um, he takes his pants off completely. So he's entirely naked. He's got a tattoo. And he's muscular. And he's 20 years old. And he's just like, all right. And then he throws me on the bed, doesn't say anything, and then all of a sudden I'm on the bed, and then with one hand he just goes, whoop, and pulls my pants off. I don't know how. I don't know. He was all, yeah. And so all of a sudden, and then I hear him hawking a big loogie. I look back, spits in his hand, and then he just wipes it right on my ass, just like, whoop, right on my butthole. And I'm like, ah, like that. And then he spits again, and, and, and I look, and then he's just lathering up. He's just lathering up, and I'm like, what is he? What? What? What's it? And then I was like, wait a minute. No way. No. If he didn't couldn't in my mouth, there is no way. No way. It's just not going to happen. So I was like, ah, yeah. And so then he grips me hard. And then I, spit is a lot slipperier than I even fucking considered back then. I had no idea. But it, he just grips me hard. And it was like a thousand knives. Well, I just, ah, I just 
was just like, oh, and he gripped me hard, and he was able to just the tip, and I go, oh, and I was screaming, I was moving, like I was, ah, jam, and then finally he relents, just as he gets, and he relents like that, and then the weird thing, he just starts peeing on me, and I know this is pee because it's a lot, and it's on the bed, and I'm like, what the, it's so weird, and that was the weirdest thing to me, I was like, I remember looking at him, and why did you pee on me, and he's just, like that, and then I put all my clothes on, I was all wet, and I just went home, and uh, me and Roberto were not friends anymore, I was a solo vandal at that point. Then we moved again, and this move was different. We moved to Denver, Colorado, and my dad was having a house built in Aurora. While we were there, getting the house built in Denver, we were in a motel. In the motel, you had the chair, you had mom and dad's bed here, and brother and sister, and I slept over here, two kings, and there was a TV right here. And I remember, it was late at night, and my dad, since I was 13 now, let me uh, watch TV late when everybody else was asleep. So at 11 o'clock, the show Benny Hill comes on. And I'm just there in my underwear, watching, and it's kind of hot night. And I remember I'm watching Benny Hill, and it's the first time I'd ever seen it. And if you don't know what Benny Hill is, it's a British guy, and he's funny, but he's also a pervert. Like a real pervert. Like he has one segment called Hill's Angels, what I'm specifically getting at. And so I'm 13 in my underwear, and I'm watching Hill's Angels do this burlesque strip tease without stripping. And this one British lady, blonde hair, and so buxom, and such beautiful lips, and her legs are so amazing. And all of a sudden, it, uh, my crotch just hurt. It's like, ow! And I remember looking down, thinking, my heart is down there now. It's my heart is beating. Oh my God, my heart's beating down there. And uh, it was so weird, and I wanted to watch TV, and she was so pretty, but then I was beating, and it was weird, and I thought, is there something in there, like something? And then I lifted up, and it was crazy big. Not as big as Ernesto, but big, and it was red, and it looked angry, and everything, and I was like, what the? And I remember just touching it, and like detonating a bomb, all of a sudden the room turns white, uh, there's just a sensation on my chest and face, and it's just, what? What? And I look around, and says, everybody going through this? And what has happened? And why? And, and, and then, oh my God, oh, it's sticky, like ectoplasm, and I t salty. Oh, oh, and I, I, nobody was awake. I turned off the TV, I went, and I took a shower, and I went back to bed, and I thought on that for a long time, and I realized that's the best friend's secret. That's who I need to save it for. It's British women that I need for the best friend's secret. Yes, British. And so those experiences, they had to happen, and they did happen to make me the person I am. Because in some weird cosmic way, I am oddly grateful that that happened. For one, I know exactly what I'm driven for. My sexuality, I'm, I'm just, yeah, okay, British women. I got it, Benny Hill. I'm on it. I'm on it. That's nature. I just couldn't help it. Whatever. Let's do that. It also had to happen for me to realize that why would there be laws against gay people in the world? Why? It's, it's so... Of course there should be gay marriage. Of course there should be equal rights. Of course, because I lived through that and acted in that. What is it like to treat a human like that? That's, that's just evil. And everybody should be equal like that, and I know that. And I think the most important thing that I learned from that whole experience, which is actually from my parents' neglect, is I learned how to become a better father to my daughter, to be able to give her the comfort and be able to talk to her and know what her world is about, and be able to actually have her confident enough to tell me her secrets.
My name is Darren Bodecker. Thank you. teach your children well or Ernesto might get to them good lordy Uh, let me bring our next storyteller to the stage she was a fan of the show who heard me saying that we needed stories pitched me this and I was like I gotta hear it she's also known as Titty Boobowitz (laughs) but that's purely a comedic character name Please welcome to the stage, Mindy Bilderbeck! So I was sitting downtown outside at a bar in Denver, and I was there with some of my other Teach for America friends drinking my favorite summer drink, a gin and tonic. And when I stood up to go to the bathroom, a flood of exhaustion washed over me. I suddenly couldn't take a full breath. My body felt like I had just run a 5K. I was covered in sweat and my joints ached. And I thought, of course you're exhausted, Mindy. You just graduated college. You're starting a career teaching inner city at-risk youth in a middle school. You just moved to a new town. Maybe you're not used to the altitude in Denver. And you don't know anyone here. And your roommate hates you. But I had experienced this exhaustion so many times that summer. By the time it was happening every day, I was used to it. I forgot that at age 22, it wasn't normal to have to stop and catch your breath halfway up one flight of stairs. I had grown up with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, so I was used to achy joints. I had been diagnosed when I was three, so I was used to hospitals and not feeling good. And I remember when I was about five asking my doctor, what's wrong with me? Why can't I snap snaps or do buttons or zip a zipper? And he explained to me that autoimmune disorders are when good parts of your body start attacking other good parts of your body, which translated into my five-year-old head as, your own body hates you. (laughs) And from then on, I kind of hated it right back. And I tried not to rely on my body for anything. I never second-guessed treatments that might cause harm in a case that it would hurt something else. If it would make something better, I'd do it. So when I was diagnosed at age 22 with a pre-malignant thyroid tumor, my first response was to just cut it out. That'd be fine. But I didn't want to do that living in a city where I didn't know anyone. I certainly wasn't in shape to start teaching a classroom full of at-risk inner-city youth. So I tabled my teaching plans to move back home to Omaha, Nebraska, which is where I'm from originally. And honestly, I was relieved that I didn't have to be a teacher anymore. It's really depressing to assign homework to students who don't necessarily have a home. I was relieved to go back home to Omaha, Nebraska, where I could feel like myself again and be around my friends and not be the 80-year-old person staying at home all day watching Star Trek, which is exactly what I had been doing. But when I got back home, I learned that I didn't just have a thyroid tumor. I also had Graves' disease, which sounds really serious. And I was kind of freaked out when I heard Graves' disease. But my doctors reassured me that it's just another autoimmune disorder, and it'll be fine. It affects the thyroid, but it also affects the eyes it makes the eyes bulge out. And I remember my doctor explaining to me that Graves' disease changes the muscles in the eyes and it causes them to inflame, which makes the eye compressed and it changes it from a sphere to an oval. And it affected my vision. I ended up having to get glasses 
And by the time my eyes bulged out so far, I couldn't close them all the way. My doctors recommended that I tape my eyes shut while I sleep. <laughs> yeah, fucking right. I was, at that point, a single woman living in a basement. There's no way I'm going to sleep with my eyes shut. <laughs> no, taped shut, not shut, also. But I was pretty grateful. I did end up living in a family friend's basement. She offered it to me while I got back on my feet. I really didn't have anywhere else to go. I had nothing when I moved back from Denver. And it was a pretty big basement. It had like all carpeted and there was a fireplace and some old gym equipment and a fish tank. And I thought like, okay, I can get back on my feet here. This will be fine. I also had a mountain of medical debt to deal with because when I had my surgery, I didn't have health insurance. So it was kind of rock bottom, but it wasn't that bad. And then one morning in February, I woke up really early, before my alarm went off. I woke up with a jolt. It was still dark out. And I knew something was wrong. My eyes felt pretty dry, but one of them felt really dry. I'm one of those people who sleeps with their arms up, like for a pillow. I thought maybe I had rubbed some dust in it. So I tried to blink. And I couldn't blink. Why the fuck couldn't I blink? Instinctively, I raised my hand up to my face, and I knew something was really wrong. My heart raced, my jaw dropped. In the palm of my hand was my left eyeball. And my eyelids were closed behind it. So I thought, what the fuck you do when you're cupping your left <laughs> But I'm going to think this out. I'm not going to panic. I'm going to calm down. What do I do? I should find my phone. I should call someone. But I don't really know where my phone is, and I don't want to move my right eye for fear of what will happen to my left eye. <laughs> and I was not going to get out of bed because I was terrified that I was going to trip. And at this point, the sensation started to register. To myself, to my, in my head, my eye felt really dry and it felt like it was just covered with sand. But to my hand, it felt like a squishy marshmallow. <laughs> and then, I think I touched my optic nerve. Which is when I just started screaming. <laughs> the mother of the family who lived upstairs ran down to the basement. And she looks at me and without skipping a beat says, I think you need to go to the hospital. <laughs> I think we need to get you to the hospital. So she loads me up into the family's Dodge Grand Caravan, and every bump we hit on the way was a nightmare. And I remember taking a peek in one of the rearview mirrors, just real quick to see, and all I saw was a clown nose red ball where my eye should be. I looked like Mad Eye Moody, but with real bad pink eye. <sighs> And I was too scared to talk on the way because I was afraid that if I opened my mouth, I would puke. So we get to the hospital and I got in right away. <laughs> they didn't question me. <laughs> and at that point, by then, I had already kind of made peace with the fact that like, I was just not gonna have that eye anymore. Like that's what happened to parts of my face or my body that Treat me wrong. I'll cut it out. I don't need you anymore. <laughs> and I don't remember a whole lot about the hospital experience, but I remember looking over and seeing the tools on the table, and they looked like dental tools. They were metal. 
And I remember thinking, like, see, eyeball, that's what you get. <laughs> Pokey dental tools. <laughs> but it all happened really fast. I, they gave me an anesthetic. They sorted my eyelids out. They washed or rinsed my eye and slapped a flesh-colored eye patch on it. And they didn't remove it. I got to keep my eye. It goes on to see another day. But... <laughs> Shortly afterwards, I had talked to my doctor, like, what, what happened? Please, please make me feel better about this. And she says, so, Mindy, when you sleep with your eyes open, they get really dry. But your eyelids stay kind of lubricated, which makes it sticky. And when you're dreaming, your eyes move, which kind of caused the eyelids to contract even more than they usually did. And the further they got pushed back, the further they got stuck. And so I was like, so... Basically, my dry eyeball made my eyelids sticky and stick back there. And she's like, yeah, that's basically what happens. And I was like, all right, how do, how do I know it won't happen again? And she's like, you don't. <laughs> Luckily, it's never happened again. It's only just that one time. And it's kind of gotten better since then. Like, my eyes don't bulge quite as much. I can sleep with them shut now, and that's pretty great. And I don't know if maybe it was a sign that my luck was changing or what. It still just gives me an ego boost. The night after my eye came out, so that very night, I went to a bar with some of my friends, probably <laughs> drinking a gin and tonic. And I got laid that night. <laughs> and it was a hot guy, too. <laughs> That's my story. <laughs> Mindy Fielder back! Uh, yeah, some men just have a thing for women who have very, very recently had one eye come out of its socket. Um, let me bring our next storyteller to the stage. Uh, she's done the show in New York City, even though she is a Chicagoan herself. She has a solo show that is having a five-week run now at the Boho Theater, and you can find more about it at adamnicelady.com. Please welcome to the stage Jen Bosworth. Balls, man, that was some serious shit. It's not a fucking joke. Um, so, 2005, and I live in Los Angeles, and it's Christmas time. And here's the thing about Los Angeles at Christmas time, it looks just the fucking same as it does when it's not Christmas there. <laughs> Except in Beverly Hills, they have these idiotic plastic stupid-ass Santas that hang from uh, Wilshire Boulevard. It's a joke. It's pathetic. Um, so anyway, I just say that that sets the tone, I guess. Um, and it's 2005, and I, I'm from Chicago, actually from Evanston, but I, I have moved to Los Angeles to, to be, I can't even say it with a fucking straight face, to become an actor. And... Uh, <laughs> It just sounds so ridiculous. Um, 
So that's what I did, and I was there, and I got to Los Angeles, and like three days later, I stopped acting. Because the women in Los Angeles don't look like regular people, and um, it, I knew it wasn't going to work out. So I quit while I was ahead, and um, I got a job at a bookstore, which led to a job working for a movie star. Now, that's how shit happens in L.A. You're, one day you're like at a bookstore, and the next day you work for a movie star. I won't say who he is because I don't want to get sued, and I haven't talked to a lawyer. So um, <laughs> suffice it to say, he's a strange man, and um, I hated myself. I mean, let's just call it like it is. I hated my body. I hated my stupid fat face. I hated myself. And I don't know, and this was not good because I was only in my 20s, so I had a ways to go. And if I was starting off this way, it wasn't going to be good. But that's just the level of self-loathing. And Los Angeles just adds to that. It's not helpful in that arena in terms of self-esteem. So I did not like myself, um, understatement. And... I hated my job because I knew it wasn't going to go anywhere. I picked up a lot of people's dry cleaning. I picked up a lot of people's dog's shit. I did a lot of dog shit picking up in Los Angeles. And that's, there's no real future in that. I don't know if you guys are considering, <laughs> considering moving to Los Angeles, uh, but dog shit picking up doesn't seem like it's the way to go. My love life was terrible. I had none. I mean, I, I went on dates and they went nowhere or, you know, I did online dating in Los Angeles and I swear, this one guy said to me, the first thing he said to me was, wow, you look a lot bigger than your picture. And I was fucking smart and I said, well, fucking picture's four by six, jackass. <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. Needless to say, we didn't go out ever again. Um, but, so that's where I was. That was my life. And so, I had this one guy that I met on an airplane, and we drank the whole flight, and I, uh, by the end, was in love with him. And he looked like, of course, because with your drinking on a plane, you fall in love really easily. <laughs> And he was beautiful, and he was tall, and he looked like the kind of guy where you know you weren't going to have to pay his phone bill at the end of the month. You know what I mean? Like that kind of a guy. So that was a plus. And we met on a plane, and we drank, and we drank a lot together when we got off the plane. So drinking was something that we really liked to do together, and I thought this was a good sign. Um, and he looked like JFK Jr. And he did the New York Times crossword puzzle in pen. And ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I can't do a fucking word search. So, you know, I can't find flour in the word search. So this was a plus. And he smelled like Old Spice, which had this weird thing of reminding me of my grandpa, which I kind of liked. It was kind of a turn on. That's a different story. And, um, <laughs> and so anyway, he did not love me. He said, Jen, I love you, but I don't love you, love you. And they're the same word, right? But it sends such a message. It's a very clear. If someone loves you, but they don't love you, love you, it is time to move on. But I could not. I decided things were pretty bad. Why not go home for the fucking holidays? 
you know, let's just go full tilt. But really, I say that looking back, but really what I wanted was to go home here to Chicago with normal people that wore normal clothes with elastic pants, you know, and just like their food, the food, you know, the holiday eating pants and just weird style. I wanted that and I thought my parents were going to be like, you know, fuck that asshole. You're beautiful. But things don't turn out always like you think they're going to. And I got home and I walked up the stairs in Evanston to my house that I had grown up in and I opened the door and my ma was sitting right there at the dining room table smoking a Benson and Hedges ultralight menthol 100 and drinking, you know, red wine and I knew, oh, this is gonna fucking go down. This is not, (laughs) this is not gonna be, you know, anyway. But what can I do? You can't turn around, nothing to go back to. So why does, might as well just stick it out. So the first thing this lady says to me, my mom, is, I'm leaving your father. And I'm like, I'm like, son of a bitch, I can't win. And I just said, oh, I literally had my, you know, crazy puffy jacket that made me look really fat. And I didn't even take that off. She said that before I took any of it off. So I'm like, so then I just do what I did, which was sit down with her in my puffy coat and just start smoking a Benson Edges ultralight menthol too. What else do you do? Now, they never liked each other, my parents. They stayed married for 30 years, but they couldn't fucking stand each other. Well, my mom couldn't stand my father. My dad desperately wanted my mom to love him, and it just, it didn't work. But so she explained to me, rattled on something. She was like half-cocked on, you know, Merlot, but she said something about a sleeping bag, my father falling asleep in his chicken wings at dinner one night, and divorce and lazy son of a bitch. Like, those were the things I understood that came out of her mouth. And I'm like, okay, all right. Mer- Merry Christmas, okay. I can, but I was still, was, I was like, I can handle this. I'm from the fucking Midwest. I'm used to this crazy, you know, home for the holidays shit. I can do it. And I was like, well, I'm going upstairs, Ma. Maybe I'll go to sleep. Merry Christmas. And she said to me, Merry Christmas. I'll see you in the morning unless I shoot myself in the head before that. (laughs) That was my mom. Real Merry Christmas. So I go upstairs, still wearing that fucking coat, I probably, because my mom never turned on the goddamn heat, because she was a heat miser, and you would say, Ma, it's cold, and she would say, put on a fucking sweater. That was how we did things in my house. And so I went upstairs, and I went into my parents' room, but before I entered, I heard this noise. Now, my dad was six feet, eight and a half inches tall, all right? He was a big Swedish dude. And he snored, and he had apnea, because all big people seem to have apnea. I don't know why that is. It's just the way it is. And so I was used to the snoring, right? But there was like a gurgling. But it was almost like a laugh. It was the strangest sound. And I thought, do I want to fucking do this? Do I want to open this door? And I'm like, I've got to. It's my father. I liked my father. My mom was this short, small, tiny, mean Colombian woman. So was my sister. I mean, I'm Colombian too, but she took after my mom. I took after my dad, broad-shouldered, bigger. So we had to stick together, us gentle giants. Um, And so I was like, no, I'm going to see what's going on, and I'm going to solve it. 
maybe they can't take care of me, but I sure as fuck am going to take care of them. So I, I open the door and there's a hall light on so I can see a little bit. And what I see is my father's big, fat, white head on the floor, but nothing else. Like he's a floating, big, decapitated head. And I'm like, what the fuck is this shit? What? And I open the door a little more and my father wakes with a start. He's like, oh, you know, like, and I'm like, dad, dad. And he's like, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? <laughs> and I'm like, dude, call my dad, dude, it's Jenny. I'm, I'm home from Los Angeles. Remember I told you I was called, oh, Jenny. Like he had, had no clue. Like I was the long lost prodigal son come home to check on him. I don't know, but he clearly was not expecting me. And I leaned over and I'm like, I could see then what was happening. I opened the door a little more so I could see, and my father was on the floor in a ginormous navy blue sleeping bag, (laughs) zipped up to his neck. And my first thought, ladies and gentlemen, was, where do you get a fucking big enough sleeping bag to fit this fucking dude? (laughs) Like a big and tall camping store or some shit. like oh okay he's in a sleeping bag that's weird and I said dad and and my father had gone out sleep he was out like a light again so I'm like dad he's like I'm like I'm here what why are you on the floor in a sleeping bag he's like what I'm like why are you on the floor and that's when I noticed his eyeballs speaking of eyeballs (laughs) no offense but his eyeballs were going in different directions like he looked like they were Google eyes. Like I couldn't quite get a grasp on where his eyeballs were looking. And I said, and I said what, what, what are you doing on the floor? What, what is this? And he said, oh, well, that's a long story. I'm like, well, tell me, what's going on? Con- condense the fucking thing. What's happening here? And he said, well, <laughs> this sleeping bag is magic. I'm like, oh, I'm like okay, all right. I've just walked into some fucking fucked up Twin Peaks bullshit. I don't know what, I don't know what's happened, but I'm in it for the long haul now, so fuck it. Let's go. Let's just dive right in. I expected like midgets to come running out of the, but anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is I was scared actually, because it's a weird thing to see a very large man on the floor in a sleeping bag with two eyes going two different directions. And he said, this sleeping bag is magic. It keeps me invisible. I'm like, and he said, she can't see me when I'm in my sleeping bag. I'm like, who can't see you? (laughs) He's like, and real paranoid too, real paranoid, your mother. And I'm like, this makes no fucking sense, but he really believed it. He believes, and I said, well, Dad, I think she knows you live here because you were married. He's like, no, 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 no. When I'm in this bag, everything's okay. Okay, well, how do you argue with that? I said, well, why are you on the floor in the bag? Well, don't tell your mom. I'm like, okay. But I, I was at Long John Silver's, and I was like, Dad, he was not supposed to be at Long John Silver's. He had diabetes, he was overweight. I'm like, Dad. He's like, I know, I know, I know, but I, I like that shrimp basket. I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> He's like, and I fell down and I broke my back. So what the fuck? 
you don't call me? Nobody tells me, oh, by the way, your father broke his back? And I said, are you paralyzed? Like, that was my first. And he's like, no, it's just a vertebrae, but it fucking hurts, so I have to sleep on the floor. I'm like, okay, this all is making sense to me. And he's like, so I have this magic sleeping bag. I'm like, okay, okay, I can get past that. But I did say, like, why are you talking crazy? Like, I understand the broken back. And he's and then, ladies and gentlemen, I look around the room, and I open the door a little more, and he's like, don't, don't. Close the door. And I'm like, Dad, no. And I see, I see on the nightstand a ginormous bottle of pills. Like, you know those jumbo, jumbo prescription bottle? And I'm like, oh, okay. And he's like, and he sees that I have them, and I start rattling around. He's like, no, 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 no. Don't touch my pills. Don't touch my, I'm like, what are these? And he's like, you guys guessed it probably in your head. He's going towards this whole invisibility thing. He's like, those pills are the thing that make my magic sleeping bag work. I'm like, oh, so it's like you can't have one without the other, apparently. And I'm like, Dad, what is this? He's like, don't touch my pills. And I look, and the dude has been taking methadone. Now, methadone is fucking heroin, if, if you don't know. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? What the fuck is this? And he's like, I just take what the doctor tells me to take. And I'm like, how much of this are you taking? And he's like, I just take what they, how much? And he says, I just take one pill every three hours, like they say on the bottle. And I hold that fucker up to the light. You know, it has his name, all that shit. And I'm like, looking for the dosage, looking for the, and the dosage is one methadone pill every three days. My father is high on fucking heroin. And I'm like, was my life so bad in LA? Like, okay, so I think I'm fat and I, my guy doesn't love me anymore. He loves me, at least. He doesn't love me, love me. But this, this is some shit. I mean, this is some shit. So I'm like, dad, you're overdosing on pain pills. And he's like, totally out of it. And then it struck me, even though he was fucked up and sky high on drugs, I actually could understand his weird drug-induced theory. Because my mom was a fucking asshole. And everybody wanted to be invisible from her. And I didn't blame him because she was mean to him and she would call him names you big fat lazy son of a bitch like that kind of stuff so if i lived with her i mean i was the fuck away thousands of miles but if i lived there i thought well maybe fuck it maybe i would do that too so i didn't really fault him because i got it but i couldn't have him on drugs i mean fuck that no not for christmas i mean come on <laughs> pull it together so i said dad Tomorrow we're switching to Motrin. Like I took a stand. I was like, I'm taking these and I'm not giving them back. And he was, and my father was asleep. He was like, I'm like, oh my God. Okay, that's the way it's gonna be. I still am wearing my coat, by the way. And I, that as blue, puffy, one of those marshmallow jackets, a sad state of affairs. And I took the big, ginormous pill bottle and I went into my childhood bedroom. There I stood in my childhood bedroom with a bottle of basically heroin. And I thought about my life, <laughs> thought about my family and my mom. 
And I took one of those pills. <laughs> because, because fuck it. <laughs> and because don't we all want to be fucking invisible now and again? I mean, come on. Okay, Christmas came and went. It was a disaster. My dad fell asleep in the mashed potatoes. My mom was a fucking asshole. My sister was absent because, you know, she had a cool life somewhere. And so I went back to Los Angeles and uh, on March 4th of 2006, I got a call that my father had overdosed and was in the ICU. Back on a plane, got there, totally liver shut down coma and here's the thing I think people right they say they choose who they want to be with when they die and he sure as fuck wasn't going to be with my mom right <laughs> so I got there and I sat with him and I said I don't know if you can hear me dude but it's okay you can go now because I can take care of myself I had no idea if that was true. <laughs> but it seemed like the right thing to say. And then he died. Just like that. And my life started turning around. So I didn't want to be invisible. I wanted to live and be seen, even if it was, you know, even if it meant someone loving me, but not loving me, loving me, you know? I wanted to have a good life. Thank you. Jen Bosworth. All right, all right. Now we have just one more storyteller for tonight before we all head to Cooper's. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he is a Moth Grand Slam winner. He has been on Snap Judgment. He has his own podcast called Homemade Stories. Please welcome Shannon Kaysen. If you, uh, if you die today, where would you go? I used to do what's called street evangelism. That's when you go out into the crowded streets and basically you annoy people for Jesus. <laughs> I wasn't raised to be a Jesus freak. My dad, original Detroit player, hustler, gator shoes, Cadillacs, women. He had heard that his dad, he never met him, was a, like a jack leg, womanizing, fast-talking preacher, would go to women's houses under the guise of praying for him and have sex with him. But uh, accidentally got my grandmother pregnant, then disappeared, you know. And I guess it was in my blood to run the streets in some way, except I was serious about 
really having a heart for, for people's salvation. I started going to a church in my early 20s. And it was a wonderful thing because I felt like I was a part of something. I felt like I had something to live for. I sold out. I was at every service. I was an usher, an armor bearer. Every, every ministry they had, I probably had a part in at one time. Reading my Bible. I lived a celibate life. No women. Just a kid trying my best to please God. I loved evangelism. I guess I like sales. I get, I'll show you. Like Anybody need God in here? I don't know. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, have you lied before? Thou shalt not lie. You sinned. You know, uh, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin, just payment for sin is death. But the great part is the second part. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You ever received a gift? How much you pay for a gift? You, you don't pay anything for a gift. It's free. Now the wonderful part, uh, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not, should not perish. Should not perish. You should not perish. But have everlasting life. If I might have messed up a word in there. But, uh, but would you like to receive this gift? And many people said yes, and I bowed to his, and I prayed with many people. Now, with evangelism, we would, the evangelism minister would take, send us out in twos, and I was paired up with the church secretary. Her name was Ethel. And Ethel, I love old school names. My mother's name is Bessie, and I'm a mama's boy. So I loved it. And she was tall, long legs. And that's a thing for me even to this day. I love, you know, Amazons with vintage names. Wonderful. <laughs> and she was fine, too. Fine. I mean, I had been celibate for six years at that point, but I still knew if a woman was fine, and she was. We would, we would be out like annoying heathens for Jesus together, and... Uh, and and we weren't making people uncomfortable as much as getting comfortable with one another. People at the church noticed that we had a chemistry together. And it was one of these churches where the women at the church was Jesus's girl until you put a ring on it. You know, I, could, I wasn't ready to put a ring on it, so she was supposed to be Jesus's girl. So what the, the pastor did was told me to stop hanging around her, and they split us up in evangelism. But uh, stolen water tastes sweet. <laughs> and bread eaten in secret is delicious. That's Proverbs 9.17, you know. So, <laughs> what you're not supposed to do, your body is telling you, hey, let's do this, let's do this. So we were in a mutual friend's wedding. And the bride... You know, she don't care about the pastor. The bride go get what she want. We were tall, and we were going to walk down the aisle together. She said, both of y'all tall, y'all walking down the aisle together. <laughs> and uh, I remember we was walking down the aisle, and I, I gave her a little spin, just being silly and stuff, being me. And she laughed. The whole church laughed. And it's something about weddings for single folks. You know, it just kind of like... <laughs> 
after the reception, we went out to the bowling alley, like the, the, the wedding party. Now that's a thing too. Like Christian, like if you super Christian, that's the that's like the bowling alley is the club and arcades is the club. All the corny shit is the like the, the fun stuff. <laughs> so we go to the bowling alley, the wedding party, and everybody left, and it was just me and Ethel. And she followed me home. And we got to my place, and we forgot about the pastor's rules. <laughs> we forgot about, you know, sin. Forgot about celibacy. We uh, kissed, touched, held each other. And that's another thing, like, if you save, sanctify, feel with the Holy Ghost and single, you're not really doing certain things that you do a lot of the times if you know you're going to have sex. Like, if I know I'm going to have a lot of sex, I might shave my balls a little bit. <laughs> Make it a pleasant place for them to go, you know, to enjoy. <laughs> I hadn't done any of that, and she hadn't done anything. So, <laughs> <laughs> Some people into that sort of thing, but I was like, man, so I'm. <laughs> Hairs everywhere. I'm like, wow. <laughs> but after it was over, I'm sitting on the edge of the bed, and I just, I felt bad. I felt like I had let God down, I felt defeated. Felt naked. I was naked. I still <laughs> I had to put y'all know what I'm talking about. So the next day, she goes to church. She was the secretary. That was job, her job. And she told the pastor what happened. And he called me, told me to meet him at the church. So I go to the church. I remember walking past Ethel, acting busy at her desk. I went into his office, sat in this big chair. And the pastor is a guy that I have a relationship with. We travel together. I've taken his family on vacations. Like I've driven the car. I've been with him pretty much everywhere. Like I go and travel to other churches and stuff. So we have a relationship. So I'm expecting him to know that that is not what I wanted to do and that he was gonna find some way to, to kind of, you know, help me out. Well, he just says, uh, that's why I told you not to hang around her. I knew this was gonna happen. Really upset. And the next Sunday, the pastor's giving his sermon and he Brings us to the front of the church. Full congregation in attendance, even in the balcony. And he's like, tell them what happened. <laughs> and uh, we confess our sins to God and the whole church in detail. <laughs> now, Apple was smart. She just said a few words. She was just like, I'm sorry. And it's simple, kept it simple, you know. Me, 
I'm crying like the, the tears of, <laughs> of pain and suffering. And I'm, I'm bringing up the Old Testament. I'm like, I would have been stoned at one time. And <laughs> I'm bawling. I, I got a best friend who's been with me throughout every situation in my life. And he, we real. Like, I'm real still at church. But he, he got me outside. He was like, man, the sex was that bad? All them tears, or was it that good? I don't. I appreciate him, and uh, uh, she was uh, taken, or invited, or loved on, and brought back into the fold. Me, I was discommunicated in a sense. Like my friends didn't talk to me anymore. My roommates even. Pastor, I never spoke to him again since that time he yelled at me. Never spoke to Ethel again. They did me on this little, they call it a restoration program. They had me with an associate pastor, but I'm like 27 years old. You know what I'm saying? And I'm, we go into dinner and he's supposed to tell me certain things. And he felt kind of silly. He was like, man, you, you. <laughs> he felt silly. So I'm supposed to be doing that. But after a while, I just figured like, I got the picture and left. So about six years after that incident, and I'm going to be real, I wasn't celibate in those six years. I was <laughs> getting it in. <laughs> Actually, I think of a, a, a scripture. It's a, a scripture that's talk about, like, I don't know the words and stuff, but a, it, like a strong man leaves the house, and if he comes back and the house is empty, he brings seven stronger, more wicked demons with them. And it says, the last state of the man is worse than the first. And that's what happened. A lot of things, like I got into gambling, I got into troubles that I wouldn't even have imagined that I would have gotten into. But about six years later, I saw a news report on TV and the church was closing down and they had this on the news. What had happened, it was one of these prosperity churches. The pastor was buying expensive cars, big houses, a helicopter. All that stuff is like for ego's sake, you know. I'm not against nobody having nothing, but at the same time, it's not about helping people, really. So I always wondered, like, with all them financial woes for the church, if the pastor had went in front of the whole congregation and confessed his sins. He didn't, I know this now, you know, he just moved to Florida and changed the name of the church like business people do. <laughs> if, you, if you run into trouble, risk running into trouble is gonna become uh, trouble or something like that, they gonna change the name. <laughs> Kevin Allison up here. <laughs> but uh, if you died today, where would you go? I really think salvation has got to be more than just like good timing with asking forgiveness. I've been watching a lot of biographies. I was watching a biography on serial killers. I don't know why I was watching, but... but Jeffrey Dahmer, I guess he was a born-again Christian. I'm like, really? He get to get away with it like that? Just good, <laughs> just 
good time and with asking forgiveness. I'm not the judge, but I'm like, dang. <laughs> I was, uh, a few years ago, I was at the Taste of Chicago, and I'm walking around, and a young kid stopped me, and he asked me to talk about Jesus. I had nothing to do, so I stopped and, and talked to him. And I could see myself in him. Just young, fervent for God, trying everything to live my, my best life for, for God and the people, for the approval of the people around. And I prayed with him the whole night. And after he was about to leave, I, I stopped him and I said, hey man, enjoy this moment that you're in because this is a big part of your life. It is. But don't, don't forget to live a little. Live a little. Before he went again, I said, hey, hey, if you mess up, that's between you and God. Don't feel the need to go in front of your whole congregation. <laughs> and I still love the Lord. And I still love people. And I thank you for letting me share my story. Thank you. all for this week folks this is bishop allen behind me now don't forget those announcements i made earlier about the fact that we're looking for someone who can help us do tweety and facebooky things also looking for someone who can help us uh, market our online educational services at the storystudio.org and what the hell if you're in new york city and uh, you have any leads about this kind of thing i am looking to move. I am looking for a studio or a one-bedroom in the uh, $1,500 a month range. So contact me at Kevin at com if you have any leads on that kind of thing. Those of you who are New Yorkers are probably thinking, Jesus Christ, you're still that poor? And those of you who aren't New Yorkers are probably thinking, holy crap, it costs $1,500 for a hole in the wall an hour away from Manhattan? Shit, yeah, motherfucker. Shit, yeah. Our next Drisk Live shows in New York at the Pit and in Los Angeles at the Nerd Melt are on August 28th. And then on the 29th, 
We're in Austin, Texas. We are still taking pitches for that Austin show. So go to the submissions page at riskdeshow.com and submit us your stories. You might be in that Austin show. Now, on September 13th, something very special is happening. We're having our first online video presentation of a Risk Live show on Kogo.tv. So mark your calendars about that, and I will keep reminding everyone. Now, on the 17th of September, we're in Portland, Oregon. Put that in your calendars, and Portlanders, we are still taking submissions for stories there, too. Pitch us your stories. Go to the submissions page at riskdashow.com. On the 18th, we're in San Francisco. That's September 18th. Same deal. The San Francisco show is a little bit special. Uh, we're, we're teaming up with body storytelling for that one, and we want the filthiest sex-related stories we could possibly find for those shows. Okay, uh, that's about it. Do not forget that Risk is a proud and happy member of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts and all of the podcasts on Maximum Fun are listener supported. We very dearly rely on the financial help that we get from the people who love what we do. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and make a one-time contribution or become a member and earmark it for Risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife. You pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. Shit, yeah, motherfucker. Shit, yeah.